You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 196 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Wow. Only a few more episodes and then we are going to celebrate number 200. And then I will release something I hope you all will enjoy. And with plenty of time before Christmas as well. So maybe this little thing is something that you want to get your grubby little hands on. So if you don't know what gift to get, then this might be something for you. But what? What is it? Well, I'll tell you in episode 200. This is called In the Fiery Depths of Hell. Also called the marketing department of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. This is called Building Momentum. Anyway, about a year ago I did an episode called Miscellany of Sagacity. Which was a mix of a bunch of different people sharing some wisdom. I got some positive reactions from people so I thought I would do another one. A sequel also something that the marketing department of Natural One Alchemist has advised me that that's something you should do. It's very good for the brand to do sequels. It's a sure sell. <laughs> anyway, uh, before I play Miscellany of Sagacity 2.0, uh, I want to talk a bit about women. I'm aware that this podcast is a sausage fest and the mix of wisdom you will soon hear is no exception. But the problem is there aren't any women out there that I can have on as a guest or women talks that I can play. I mean, there are women out there recording talks and doing stuff. But they also have to interest me. And if I don't feel interested, I'm not going to contact them or play their talks. I would love to have more women on the podcast. And I'm always trying to find some to you know, invite on as guests. But it's difficult. Because many of the women I contact, they turn me down. The men don't do that. The women do. Are they not confident enough, maybe? Uh, They just seem to have more reservations about simply just doing the podcast. And I I don't, like I said, I don't have this issue with the men when I ask them. There are also some cool women that simply don't have anything recorded. You know, there are women that I enjoy and to, uh, you know, read or read about what they've written or done or said but they don't really have a something recorded that I can use you know and play so even if they don't want to be guests I don't have any audio you know um so that's another issue I guess it will take a few more generations for women to catch up to the men I mean they were for hundreds of years pushed into the background and it takes time for them to rise to the surface now there are plenty of intelligent wise women out there don't 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 get me wrong i just can't seem to find as many 
as the men. You know, they're easy to, you know, if you want to have a an author talk about his recent book about the uh, the matrix of the mind, you know, you don't even have to Google that. You'll just stumble upon it while logging into your uh, email account. But if you want to find a woman talking about the same thing, you really have to dig. Um, so if anybody out there know a woman that is still alive and that you think might be a cool guest, please suggest it to me. I would be interested. If I count only episodes that have a guest or where I play a pre-recorded talk, you know, if I don't count the solo episodes with only myself, then women have made a 10% appearance in the 196 episodes I've done. So you see, we need more female voices, more women. Don't think I don't have this in mind, especially if there are any female listeners who are you know, getting bored with the sausage fest we are presenting here, but I am actually trying. And I need help, so let me know if you know anyone you think would be an excellent guest, because um, I would love to feature more women. But I am not into just putting on any woman because it's a woman. No, she has to spark my interest. So if, if you have someone in mind, uh, uh, you can use the contact form on naturalbornalchemist.com and let me know and I'll have a look at the suggestions you give. Okay, so let's listen to my Miscellany of Sagacity sequel. And this one focus a bit on indigenous culture although it has some general wisdom as well. And who's kidding who? It's, you know, it's all over the place. Towards the end, there is a lot of focus on the notion of infinity, so that might be interesting. Uh, this mixture I've put together features David Boom, Alan Watts, Anna Breitenbach, a woman, I might add, Krishnamurti, Joseph Campbell, Terence McKenna, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and Coleman Barks. And some of the music you'll hear is from Station Approach, Pedro Elias, Nameless Archive, Lassenov, Eric Fulton, Satie, McMangos, Wagner. Wagner. Some Icaros and Bewitti Pal, Bewitti Amico, Maviango. Anyway, enough of credits. Sit back, close your eyes, unless you're driving. And uh, just enjoy. The self is not the source of thought, but rather thought is the source of the self. To understand is to transform what is. Because people can't be talked out of illusions. Because people can't be talked out of illusions. Crowing comes from the rooster. Morning comes from God. The uh, rituals of initiation of young men in some of the very simple societies are extremely interesting. 
the boys are brought up to be in fear of the masks that the men wear in their rituals. These are the gods. These are the personifications of the powers, the structure, the society. The boy, when he gets to be more than his mother can handle, the men come in with their masks, or whatever their costume is, and they grab the kid, and he thinks he's been taken by the gods, taken out into the men's ground, and he's beaten up and everything else. But then there, in New Guinea, there's a wonderful, wonderful event where this poor kid has to stand up and fight a man with a mask. I'd say he's fighting the god. The man lets the kid win, takes the mask off, puts it on the kid. Now, the mask is not there defeated and simply said, oh, this is just myth. He said, the mask represents the power that is shaping the society and has shaped you, and now you are a representative of that power. That's a big story. And there are quite a number of examples uh, around the world. Down in um, Tierra del Fuego, the Ona people down there had rituals of this kind where the kid had to get up and fight this God power that he'd always been afraid of. And the man put up a good fight for the kid, you know, but then the boy won. Now you're a man. You've got broken past the image as fact and understand the image as metaphor. And you are to represent what the metaphor stands for. I have looked into this a lot and I've actually had the privilege of spending a week with the um, Kalahari, the sand bushmen in one of their sacred hunts. And they do see a hunt as very sacred. What they actually do is they have a telepathic communication with, uh, with that species, shall we say, before they even start to look for tracks to follow. So the night before, they may silently, through a state of prayer or... Um, you know, intention and telepathic connection, they would address um, as sending as a message from humans, from themselves, they would address the, the, you know, the kudu or the dear nation in their minds and just very humbly with great reverence and explain their human need and it would have to be a genuine need, not just uh, agreed. <laughs> and they explain their need and they ask if it is right for one of the, one of that species to show themselves if it's the right time for that one to offer its life so that they may live or be well, they ask that that one may show its tracks the next morning. And the next day they will set out with, a, with their intuition fully alive. They may come across the tracks of a hundred deer that morning, but they will just sense which one is the one that is appropriate to follow. And yes, when they track and follow and they eventually catch up with the animal, they even then still pause stop for quite a few minutes and they check in with that animal directly you know one last time to be really sure is this okay with the soul of that one and um they would then you know would then kill it as quickly and humanely as possible and right away they go into a thanksgiving and a prayer you know as the animal is breathing its last to really thank it for its life I've seen, I've seen this happen in the bush, and I've also seen documentary footage of similar things happening between wolves and elk, where the wolves have spent the whole day hunting, following a herd of elk, and finally, with their strategy, they have managed to separate a, a, an elk calf from the main group, and the wolves have surrounded it. By now, the wolves are tired and hungry. 
and the alpha wolf will look into the eyes of the baby elk and there's this silent exchange between them and the elk's eyes are peaceful. And then the wolves turn around and walk away, leaving the elk unharmed and the elk calmly walks back to its mother. So, and that's because in that, in that what the Native Americans call the conversation of death, in that exchange, there was an understanding that it wasn't the right one or the right time. So there's some there's some greater um, there's some greater mystery unfolding, and when the humans are really in their intuition with the appropriate amount of reverence and respect, and not seeing themselves as superior to other life forms, then um, everyone is all the beings are acknowledging their part in the dance of life. What we are trying in all these discussions and talks here is to see if we cannot radically bring about a transformation of the mind. Not accept things as they are, but to understand it, to go into it, to examine it. Give your heart and your mind with everything that you have to find out a way of living differently. But that depends on you and not somebody else. Because in this there is no teacher, no pupil. There is no leader. There is no guru. There is no master, no savior. You yourself are the teacher and the pupil. You are the master, you are the guru, you are the leader. You are everything. And to understand is to transform what is. this in an elementary way if somebody says you're an idiot the image of yourself as an idiot is painful and there's an automatic response to uh, 
uh, accept uh, assumptions of proving you're not an idiot, somebody else is an idiot. Uh, but that's a minor point. The major point is that if somebody says something which threatens the reality of this whole structure itself, then it's as if your life were at stake. The brain, all, all stops are pulled out, and the brain responds, you know, with the instinct of self-preservation to absolutely prevent you from considering it. I, uh, the major form of defense is simply concealment of what's going on, because if we could see what's going on, it would be obvious it's an illusion. It's like seeing through the trick of the magician. So we're not conscious, certainly, of the defense mechanism, because this process of concealment itself has to be concealed in order to make it effective. And therefore, the, uh, the defense, the major part of defense consists in making the whole process unconscious. The self is not the source of thought, but rather thought is the source of the self. Now, uh, that may seem paradoxical to our ordinary experience, but it, at least we can make it reasonable. You see, uh, if we're saying that the assumption of the self creates uh, inside a kind of image of the self uh, corresponding to that assumption with, with great power, and that image is attributed reality, and you get a feeling that it's real. Therefore, you, you form the assumption that there is the, the self who is the thinker, the source of thought, and there is that which he is thinking about, and besides that, there's the thought which is produced by the thinker, which refers to what he is thinking about. Now, therefore, the things which really are solidly existent in that view are the thinker and what he is thinking about. Thought is a very ethereal, almost non-existent thing. What is being suggested instead is that the thought process is real. It's going on in the brain and nervous system, and this thought process contains in it the assumption of a thinker who produces thought. So it's as, as it were producing a television program of a thinker producing thought and the, and the mind is watching that program so intently that it takes that to be the reality. <laughs> and then therefore thought now says I am very modest, I am serving the thinker, but in fact it's serving itself because it, it is always, it, it produces this thinker and then, <laughs> and then does what this thinker wants. <laughs> There's a kind of conditioning around the self which is extremely strong. It, because it contains assumptions of, 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 of absolute necessity. You see, the self is considered to be something supremely important, and whatever it needs is regarded as absolutely necessary, which means that you, it cannot be otherwise, it cannot yield, and therefore it takes first priority and it pushes everything outside, including even the requirement that thoughts should be tr correct and true. And therefore, it immediately starts self-deception going, and, that is why thought becomes dangerous, because if thought deceives itself, it is really very dangerous. Well, I think the ultimate purpose of Kay's work was stated very early in his life, in his work, which was to free humanity from the destructive conditioning we've been talking about. That is, uh, this uh, conditioning around the um, self-centered thought is really an enslavement, an enslavement to absurdity, to destruction, to unhappiness, sorrow. And it, no other kind of freedom means anything unless we are free from that. <laughs>
But he didn't say that as the last word. He said that as the opening step of a dialogue. Because the, if, he, if you say that to someone, they're going to come back after a while and say, yes, but I'm now desiring not to desire. And so the Buddha will answer, well, at last you're beginning to understand the point. Because you can't give up desire, why would you try to do that? It's already desire. So in the same way, you say, oh, you ought to be unselfish, or to give up your ego. Let go, relax. Why do you want to do that? Just because it's another way of beating the game, isn't it? The moment you see, you hypothesize that you are different from the universe, you want to get one up on it. But if you try to get one up on the universe, and you're in competition with it, it means you don't understand you are it. You think there's a real difference between self and other. But self, what you call yourself, and what you call other, are mutually necessary to each other, like back and front. They're really one. But just as a magnet polarizes itself in north and south, but it's all one magnet, so experience polarizes itself as self and other, but it's all one. So if you try to make the North Pole get the mastery of it, or the South Pole get the mastery of the North Pole, you show you don't know what's going on. A guru or teacher who wants to get this across to somebody, because he knows it himself, and when you know it, you know, you like others to see it too. So what he does is he gets you into being ridiculous harder and more assiduously than usual. In other words, if you are in a contest with the universe, he's going to stir up that contest until it becomes ridiculous. And so he sets you such tasks as saying, now of course, in order to be a true person, you must give up yourself. Be unselfish. So the Lord sits, uh, steps down out of heaven and says, the first and great commandment is, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. You must love me. Well, that's a double bind. You can't love on purpose. You can't be sincere purposely. It's like trying not to think of a green elephant while taking medicine. <laughs> When Bodhidharma, the legendary founder of Zen, came to China, a disciple came to him and said, I have no peace of mind, please pacify my mind. And Bodhidharma said, bring out your mind here before me and I'll pacify it. Well, he said, when I look for it, I can't find it. So Bodhidharma said, there, it's pacified. 
See, because when you look for your own mind, that is to say your own particularized center of being, which is separate from everything else, you won't be able to find it. But the only way you'll know it isn't there is if you look for it hard enough to find out that it isn't there. And so everybody says, all right, know yourself, look within, find out who you are. Because the harder you look, you won't be able to find it. And then you'll realize that it isn't there at all. There isn't a separate you. Your mind is what there is. Everything. But the only way to find that out is to persist in the state of delusion as hard as possible. That's one way. I don't say the only way, but it is one way. And so almost all spiritual disciplines, meditations, prayers, etc., etc., are ways of persisting in folly, doing resolutely and consistently what you're doing already. So if a person believes that the earth is flat, you can't talk him out of that. He knows it's flat. Look out of the window and see it. Obviously it looks flat. So the only way to convince him that it isn't is to say, well, let's go and find the edge. And in order to find the edge, you've got to be very careful not to walk in circles. You'll never find it that way. So we've got to go consistently in a straight line, due west, along the same line of latitude. And eventually, when we get back to where we started from, you've convinced the guy that the earth is round. But that's the, that's the only way that'll, tell, that'll teach him. Because people can't be talked out of illusions. because people can't be talked out of illusions. Because people can't be talked out of illusions. Shams just, uh, they hit, whenever Rumi and Shams would talk, evidently there were five or six uh, scribes taking down what they said to each other. And so Shams's words um, were collected in this ragged assemblage of notes and various 
dervish learning communities and they existed for in that way just as a pile of things of notes and sayings uh, that people would look at every now and then and meditate on and then uh, but nobody uh, put them in a book until 1940 and then gradually they got translated into English and uh, finally William Chittick put out a book with a horrible title of me and Rumi but, uh, but anyway it's a very good collection of Shams is saying and, and I just took and rephrased of some of those and made the 72 um, pieces of it and uh, so and to publish his book Soul Fury uh, Soul Fury is what Sham says everybody has and it must be released it's this wild immediate uh, energy in everybody that has to find some way to be find some you know outlet and uh uh, he's just wild. I'll read you some of Shams in just a little bit. You okay? He's just, he's worth listening to. Um, he says, I just can't open the thing. Okay, Shams says, everybody is in love with this word, bravo. They spend their lives trying to hear it called out to them, bravo, bravo. <laughs> Crowing comes from the rooster. Morning comes from God. <laughs> the, yeah. Eight centuries late, but he appreciates the applause. <laughs> um, Crowing comes from the rooster. Morning comes from God. Giordano Bruno and his school, he was a Franciscan monk who ended up being burned at the stake. His sin for which he was burned at the stake was he was sitting on a rooftop of one of these Italian city-states one evening presumably smoking some pretty decent boo that they brought in from North Africa. And uh, he was looking at the stars, and he it occurred to him, these things are suns. These little points of light are like the sun. Jesus Christ! And in a single moment, the universe became infinite. And he said, if these are sons, 
and he just, you know, his mind was boggled, literally. I mean, can you imagine inside the medieval worldview where they have these concentric shells of angels and demons and the, all this? Suddenly this guy gets it in a single moment and he sees that the universe is infinite and he begins to say so. And this is against Aristotle. And uh, the church just goes nuts and they drive him out of Italy and he has a whole bunch of adventures in England and other places. Eventually he makes the mistake of coming back to a place in northern Italy where he's betrayed by his patron and he is uh, he's burned at the stake for a point of view which all of us take quite for granted. There is, uh, I don't know how many people know this, but often it's mind-blowing when you learn that some infinities are bigger than others. The number of, of counting numbers, so one, two, three, up to infinity, the, the numbers you would use to count things, that's infinite. The number of irrational numbers, so the numbers that you cannot represent as a fraction, There's more, there are more of those than there are counting numbers. So these are orders of infinity. Then there are more, there are more transcendental numbers than there are irrational numbers. Pi is a transcendental number, E is a transcendental, these are, these are magic numbers that show up in mathematics. And there's, turns out, there's like an even bigger infinity of those than there is of these other two classes of numbers. And they use the, 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 um, the Hebrew letter Aleph uh, in, in, in ranking. So it's Aleph 1, Aleph 2, Aleph 3, Aleph 4. I think there are five levels of infinity. Since I suggested you read Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic tradition, it's ironic that so little time was spent on Bruno. But on the other hand, I recommended you read the book so you should be well informed on Bruno. Uh, for me, Bruno, uh, we just didn't get into that particular historical episode because I wanted to tell you about the Rosicrucian Enlightenment. But the thing to remember about Bruno is his discovery of the infinitude of the cosmos and that by an act of unencumbered observation I mean how many people had looked at the night sky before Bruno and they had not seen what he saw which was infinite space and suns hung like lamps unto the uttermost extremes of infinity by an act of uh, pure cognition he was able to destroy an entire cosmological vision that had uh, limited and confined the human soul for millennia that's half of his story the other half is he was burned at the stake for refusing to back down from this. And it's a, it's a model for us all that trust 
your perception, trust your intuition, and then accept the consequences because this is what existential validity must be. And it's the heart of it that is so hard to talk about. I mean, I skim the ideas off the depth of a sea of heart whose boundaries cannot be taken, because that's my style. But the unsaid part, the dizziness of the things unsaid, remember the poem by Trumbull Stickney, I lean over your meaning's edge, and I feel the dizziness of the things you have not said. And the dizziness of the things unsaid, for us fans of dizziness, is ecstasy. The vertigo, weren't we first spun in the schoolyard? Wasn't that your first altered state of consciousness? To be spun and spun until you fall down and watch the world move around? It's the dizziness of the things unsaid. That's a real problem for me. I'm a sayer, but uh, it's worth invoking it, uh, if only to let it resonate in the silence. You are humbly invited to support this podcast, and by doing so, keeping it free from corporate influence. Do you want to listen to alchemists, magicians, shamans and psychonauts? Or do you want to listen to humans possessed by dark and demonic forces that intends to lure you into their web of consumerism? I'm sure you choose the former, so please support the podcast. Join us at the round table of the divine mystery as an intergalactic spirit warrior and ally to the glorious art of alchemy. Go to Patreon dot com forward slash natural born alchemist if you want to become a patron and for only a couple of bucks a month you will be able to access additional content deleted episodes and other exclusive material as well and be able to listen to episodes way before they are released and if you don't want to do this that's fine too you are loved nonetheless thank you Are you still there? I do hope you enjoyed this episode. I put some work into it. Um, And now if you uh, are in the mood to watch a film and you don't know what to watch, then here is a suggestion. One film I recommend, if you got the stomach for it, is Gaspar Noé's Irreversible. And Gaspar Noé is friends with John Coonan, another film director that I talked to in episode 86, if you want to check that out. But um, 
this film Irreversible is, is very good in the very same spirit as Christopher Nolan's Memento, if you've seen that, where uh, the plot is told in the wrong order. There's been many films like this, but Irreversible in particular is not, the plot is not told in a, uh, you know, chaotic order. It is in a very specific order. It, every scene in the film is placed in the, in the reverse order. So the end is at the beginning and whatever happens before the end is right after the beginning and the end of the film is the beginning of the film. You know? So it's like a film that you've, you, you've edited in a way so it goes backwards through every scene of the film. And it's a bleak, uh, depressing film in the sense that you know there's no resolutions really to anything that happens. There's a gruesome, horrible rape scene that was very controversial when it came out. And there's some violence that looks very realistic. And, uh, you know, you have to have the stomach to watch this film, I think. But if you want to see something unusual and a story told backwards, then you should really watch this film because it really works, I think. Especially like you watching the film, you know how it ends because you've seen the beginning. You know what happens to all the characters. And towards the end, you know, you see these characters, what they are doing and what, what is happening to them before all the horrible things were happening to them. And, uh, you know, of course they're happy and, you know, um, there's uh, a lot of love and beauty and uh, it has a strong impact I think when when you watch it because you know you've already seen what they are about to go through so uh, I think it works and uh, therefore I want you to if you haven't try and get hold of irreversible Let's close this episode with a nice little song called TV Song by Dan Warren. You can find it on Dan Warren's album The Scientist. Go to store.cdbaby.com forward slash artist forward slash Dan Warren. I'll post that link and more in the program notes of this episode. Also, check out naturalbornalchemist.com. There you can find some of my writings as well as a bunch of other stuff. I have an Instagram now and all that crap. And don't forget to follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter as well. See you all in a week. Freedom is in the mind. The knob on the TV is broken That's why it's always on And every word Ever spoken finds its way into a song. There are noises in the attic. It's probably water from the storm. Way down deep beneath the static, misty words begin to fall. 
I've been feeling 